Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Squad Room, episode 33. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. The Squad Room is about developing, optimizing, and maintaining the health and wellness of myself and other law enforcement officers around the world. Health and wellness mean a lot of things, and I explore it all here. How can we maintain and improve our mental health, our emotional health, our mindfulness, our relationships, all the things that I want to be better at. The show is about my journey as a law enforcement officer, trying to get healthier by evaluating my own life and by reaching out to experts to see what I can learn from them. I talk to other cops, doctors, meditation experts, anyone who could be a false multiplier in my fitness. Today's guest is former Navy SEAL and right-hand man to General Stanley McChrystal, David Silverman, co-author of Team of Teams. Stay with us. Right, episode 33. Here we are. So my guest today is David Silverman. Uh, I read David's book long before I ever thought I had a shot at having him on the show. And I've read the book by his former boss already. His former boss is four-star general Stanley McChrystal. And if you're into leadership books, especially military leadership books, I highly recommend General McChrystal's first book, My Share of the Task. Phenomenal book. So when General McChrystal's second book came out called Team of Teams, uh, I picked it up, of course, right away. And it's a great book if you are someone in your department who is um, in a position or maybe you're looking to get into a position to affect some change and to change away from the uh, excuses of that's how we do it, that's just the way it's always been done, to a new model. And I think that the model that General McChrystal developed for the military is completely appropriate for police work. Uh, and for that, um, for the paradigm that we work in, we have faced a lot of the same challenges that the army does or that the military did. Uh, we face those same challenges in a civilian capacity. So one of the authors of the book or co-authors of the book is a gentleman named David Silverman. David is a former U.S. Navy SEAL. He's a graduate of the Naval Academy, and you'll hear his whole story uh, here coming up. I knew David's name. I knew that he was a co-author of the book. And in chatting with my uh, the, co- the owner of Gravitas Fitness, Eric Malzone, our guest from episode four, he uh, offhandedly mentioned that he and David are good high school friends. And I don't know why Eric withheld this information from me for the first three years of our uh, friendship. <laughs> but anyway, I'm glad he did because he uh, connected us up. And I got to have a great conversation with David about um, leadership, performing at a high level, uh, leveling up, as it were. My curiosity was David and I are the same age, and how is a guy, how did, how did he manage to get himself into a position where he was, and he was a right-hand man to General McChrystal in the military, and then when they left the military, he went and formed a company with the general uh, um, in the civilian world as a consulting, and they, they started Crosslead. Uh, among other projects. Now, you can probably tell that I'm uh, a bit of a fanboy, I guess, of the general, and that's true. I uh, really admire his book. I admire his straightforwardness. I'll link to some uh, things in some talks that he's done, and I think they're phenomenal. So I was uh, happy to talk to David to find, again, find out about um, how he was able to position himself for those opportunities, uh, what was expected of him in those opportunities, how did he take on leadership? How did he find functioning with uh, or working with such a high-functioning, high-level individual? It was a great conversation with David, and I appreciate uh, all of his time. So we'll get to that. But, of course, I want to thank SB Tactical and the iCombat Training System for sponsoring this show. Uh, check out their uh, active shooter training system, the iCombat active shooter training system at sbtactical.com. Um, they have two systems they're working with now. One, of course, is for law enforcement agencies that you can uh, either rent or purchase. Uh, and the other is for the in-home officer that called the iCombat Pro. Uh, the, the agency um, version, for lack of a better term, uh, is a, a replica AR-15 and a replica Glock pistol that functions and cycles and produces muzzle flashes. And you wear a vest that fits over all of your duty uniform uh, stuff. And you're able to get some feedback on shot placement. Think great active shooter training scenario out in the real world. Boston SWAT used it in the mayor's office. LAPD uses it. Uh, lots of different agencies use it. College campus police use it all the time because they can go onto a college campus without having to do live fire, without having to do simulations or paintball. There's no mess, no cleanup. It's pretty cool. SPTactical.com. They're a veteran-owned company. They're American-made. They're phenomenal guys, and they're super supportive of the show. So please uh, give them a shout-out. You can also follow them on Instagram at SB 
tactical.com. Uh, real quick before we begin, I wanted to give you a heads up that uh, the audio in this episode is a little goofy. I was able to fix most of it, but we recorded it in a different um, audio program and some of it didn't come out quite right. So his volume was way louder than mine. And uh, so I had to do some tweaking. So you'll hear some uh, audio bumps uh, occasionally and I apologize for that. But just a heads up, uh, it's not your stereo. It's the way that we all recorded. All right. So here's Dave. <laughs> All right, David Silverman, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, welcome. You're coming from D.C., is that right, where you are? Yeah, I'm in D.C. You're one of my first uh, transcontinental uh, interviews, I guess. <laughs> so that's great. So uh, I gave an introduction about your background before uh, before we got on, on the show here, and people know a little bit about you now going into this. So I guess my first question was uh, General McChrystal, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, four-star general, uh, now retired. Uh, was well known for reinventing um, the approach and the tactics to the global war on terror. And I read his first book, uh, My Share of the Task, amazing book, a great leadership book for anybody to read. Um, And he talks a lot about the team that he built uh, when he was serving, and you were part of that team. And I guess the first question on my mind is, how did your paths cross uh, as a Navy SEAL with a three, then four-star general in the Army? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show today. Let me, uh, I'll just take you a little bit back through through my history to try to answer your question comprehensively. Uh, I graduated Naval Academy in 1998 and then went through training immediately afterwards and then checked into SEAL Team 5 around 1999. And I spent the next better part of 11, 12 years bouncing around different teams throughout the community serving uh, in various theaters of operation to include uh, the South Pacific, uh, Asia and uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and we were we were going through a transformation both as a SEAL community, kind of coming out of the the, uh, the legacy of the 80s and 90s, and into this 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 new world. And that experience would be transformational as far as the the evolution that started to take place in the SEAL community, but in the broader special operations community, specifically those focused on counterterrorism operations. General McChrystal took command of the premier counterterrorism uh, force in 2003, and he immediately started to see a need to, to make this radical shift from, from uh, a legacy organization that was designed to respond to terrorist threats around the world to something that was much more nimble, agile, and proactive in design. And for us, that were, for myself, I was a very junior member of the community kind of coming up through the ranks uh, and leading men. We started to, to start to benefit from this transformation because primarily what he did is he opened up access for communication and learning to a much broader group than that was traditionally a, a pretty small and focused subset of, of, the, of the special operations community. So uh, my first time I passed across was when I was augmenting uh, one of those uh, mission critical elements in Afghanistan in 2005. And then I would deploy to Iraq in 2000 uh, later that month later that year in 2005 through 2006 and command a lot of the task force that was going after high-value targets in the Baghdad AOR. And one of my, I was, I was partnered with an Iraqi counterterrorism unit and at the time uh, General McChrystal's command headquarters was looking to expand uh, into leveraging post-nation partners for some of their, some of their operations, definitely specifically the ones that are evolving uh, sensitive targets like mosques and so so forth, and so we took uh, a troop from from our our task unit or or, or troop, and we assigned it to uh, the, his one of his echelon commanders in Baghdad, which was one of the, um, the Army Special Operations components, and we then sort of were in support of their operations on a daily basis hunting. So that was when I first got a chance to experience it really up close and personal. I would come back from that experience in 2006, uh, go to D.C. and spend the next two years doing uh, legislative affairs for the special operations community, uh, working with Congress and the Senate. And I was getting out of the Navy, and uh, General McChrystal was now the director of the Joint Staff, and he was selected to go back and command all the forces in Afghanistan. And when he did that, they said they're going to put the same band back together that ran this transformation for counterterrorism and see if it could be applied to the broader effort in Afghanistan. And a friend of mine uh, called and said, hey, would you be interested in serving? And I said, you know, I would be. I had not talked to my wife at the time, so 
uh, and she thought I was planning to get out. We didn't have children. And so it was one of those, yeah, sure, throw my name in that, see what happens. Well, about two weeks later, I get a phone call from the head detailer for the SEAL community saying, hey, um, uh, you have a by-name request from the general to go serve on his personal staff. You leave in a week, and uh, the tour says up to five years, which I was like, wow, this is going to be a fun conversation when I get home tonight uh, with, my, <laughs> with my wife. So uh, I spent the next 13 minutes working directly for the general on his staff, helping out with plans and operations, and it was like getting that PhD in leadership. I got to see behind the scenes on how he, how he drove um, this new way of leading and managing that we now call Crosslead, which was um, which was fantastic because I had I had lived it at the at the tactical and sort of operational level, so to see it behind the scenes was, and from his perspective was was uh, very enlightening. And so we would take that, and that would be the nexus for the, uh, the book we wrote, which is called Team of Teams, and the model that uh, we now run in our company, which is uh, Crosslink. I have a hard time uh, having a conversation with my wife, reminding her I'm going back to night shift. So I can't imagine what <laughs> what conversation you have to have for. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was. Uh, she was. You know, we we've been married at this point for wow, almost almost nine years, and uh, I probably hadn't spent much time with her less than like a hundred days. So I think she was sort of used to being gone, but. Um, uh, the whole thought was, if everyone had children, this was my chance. Was it, I had to stop being Navy SEAL to get out and do that. And uh, uh, she was like, "No problem, you go do your thing." Um, but uh, we're obviously not going to have kids until until this is over. So, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was painful, but but she understood. That's who she married. She married someone who really believed in service. And there's no way for me I could reconcile, you know, 50 years from now, talking to my grandkids that I had opportunity to help, you know, probably the most transformational leader this country's produced in 60 years, try to change the course of um, this effort, which I believe to be one of the defining conflicts of, of our generation, and uh, and not do it. It just it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been right for me personally. Yeah. Okay, so when you when you graduated from the Naval Academy, and you, that's when you went to SEAL Team, SEAL Team 5 right away? Uh, now, if I, I might be getting my years mixed up a little bit, but uh, Clint Bruce has been a guest on the show too, and I believe he was SEAL Team Five around the same time. Is that correct? Yeah, we were we, we were there together. Clint Clint uh, was a year ahead of me at the academy. Um, big football stud, captain, awesome, awesome guy. And um, yeah, he was at SEAL Team Five. Uh, he was a he was an assistant platoon commander, then a platoon commander there. Uh, right when so he was a he he was in his first platoon when I showed up and was in purgatory. Waiting to get my, my trident, but um, yeah, he was a larger in life figure at the, at the command for sure. And um, help, help me understand a little bit the, that that rank promotion uh, from you know you, you leave the academy as a first lieutenant, right? And then, which is the, what the equivalent of a assistant platoon commander, and then yeah. So in the navy, when you when you grad, you get commissioned, um, you're an ensign in the navy. Um, and you go that in the first two years, you basically spend that grade, and as long as you can fog and mirror, you make Lieutenant JG, which is the next pay grade. And again, assuming you don't, um, you know, do something really, really retarded, uh, you you get promoted again to Lieutenant at the four-year mark. So the first two years, uh, a good year of that, I was at um, was just in buds training, and then going through what's called SEAL qualification training, and so. So I would have I would have done my first platoon, which was I was a third officer in a platoon, which was a relatively new position at the time because they had too many officers they had assessed in, and um, so there was three officers in, in a platoon. So it was um, the the chain of command and the responsibility was 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 sort of non-standard to the traditional model at the time. And then I went to I went to Guam as a as an action officer in the unit where I represented. Um, uh, special operations, specifically the Navy SEALs, and with host countries helping them get ready for, prepare for, or stop you know different um, uh, terrorist activities in their region. And um, again, this would have been right after 9/11. That was a pretty quick call. In fact, uh, wasn't expecting to go over there, but they they re they relieved a guy, and they needed somebody to go. And um, I said I would do it if I could come back and take an, an OIC position of a platoon coming out of it, which I did, and I came back to SEAL Team 3 and did my OIC uh, platoon. This time I went to Southern Philippines and operated there for for seven months uh, when they were going against their um, um, Islamic threat, radical Islamic threat down south. Some of this is an ongoing insurgency that they've been dealing with for, for since the Pershing days, turn of the century, and some of it was potentially more radicalized based on uh, camps coming out of Indonesia at the time. And then I came back from that, and then I went to Afghanistan, like I talked about, 
for a couple of months with uh, as a staff officer, and then I went back to Iraq uh, as a troop commander. So I had now two, a couple of platoons underneath me, and then a bunch of augmentation. And I was partnered with a Green Beret SIF um, uh, element, and we partnered with the Iraqi their version of their Delta Force uh, for about seven months. And then I came back, uh, did a couple of years in DC, and then went back to Afghanistan for 13 months. So that was kind of the, the tour. And over that time frame, I would just take, I'd get promoted. So Ensign for the first tour, JG for the second, uh, into Lieutenant, Lieutenant for the third, uh, and then I was sort of spot promoted to 04 uh, for the Baghdad tour, and then for DC, just continued on, and then I got out right at the end of that, right when I was being selected for what would have been a commander in the Navy or 05. I was going to a funny way to ask this, or I don't know, but uh, what is it about your personality or you or your experience you think that allowed you to position yourself to get into a position to work so closely with such uh, a high-level group of people. Yeah. So, so growing up, I, I, uh, you know, I always, I always kind of liked being on teams. Um, and I played my, you know, my father made me do a lot of sports, not because I was any good. He just thought it was the right thing to do if you're a young kid to keep you out of trouble. Um, and I, you know, I sort of found my niche in the water uh, by when I moved to San Diego back when I like elementary school. So I bounced around a lot as a kid because my dad was in the Navy. And uh, I started to pick up this uh, a sport called water polo. So I, I, I got pretty decent at water polo. I played for some remarkable coaches, a guy down in Coronado by the name of Randy Burgess, who's probably produced as many Olympians as any, any, any um, high school and middle school program in the country. And then, and then I went to a, a powerhouse high school called Bellarmine College Prep in San Jose, which you know, was you know, two years I was able to national champions. And, in water polo, so um, and had this notoriously uh, hard, but the winningest coach in California history, and so he instilled this level of discipline and commitment, and mindset of uh, what it was like to be a part of a really high-performing elite team. That I said, hey, look, I, I, I want to keep this thing going, and so when I when I was trying to make a decision on college, I had you know had some choices on some schools in California, and ultimately ended up going to the Naval Academy because I said, well. I want to. I want to try to be a Navy SEAL, and I, I believe this will be the continuation of what an elite team looks like, and that I can make a profession out of it. And so, um, I was fortunate enough to get selected for the SEAL program at the academy, which is pretty competitive, and uh, and got to the community, got everything I expected. I mean, it's just a remarkable community. It has incredibly talented and gifted. Um, so I'm sorry. So you, you you said you had decided you wanted to become a SEAL. Was it? Your dad's uh, influence, or was it? Uh, what was it about the seals themselves that 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 drew you to that? Well, first I wanted to serve, uh, and because my father had served, his father had served, so that was important to me. And then what appealed to me about the seal community was initially I wanted to be a pilot because my dad was a pilot, and um, I didn't have the I didn't have the eyesight for it. You know, it's all correctable now, but back then you had to have perfect vision to to be sighted. So. I said, well, what else is there? And we were living in Coronado at the time, and, and I kept seeing these guys running along the beach, you know, in really bad-looking shorts. And I said, well, who are those guys? And he said, well, those guys are those guys are a bunch of lunatics. Those are the SEAL community. And I said, well, that sounds like exactly the type of group I want to be part of. So that sort of piqued the interest, you know, back in the day. And, you know, before, uh, before um, you know, I would say this last war. You know, you had to kind of look out and try to find the SEAL community. It wasn't. A, it was a pretty, pretty quiet organization that very few people knew about, and that's very different from how it's positioned now with all the media and and, uh, and attention and stuff. So, this started for me when I was really young. You know, in middle school. Uh, yeah, that seems like it's obviously now SEALs are on the on the front end of a lot of different, uh, of course, books and all that too, but. Uh, Leadership and stuff like the organization you're running now, Crosslead, or um, uh, Jocko Willink has a very popular book and popular podcast now. Um, people are definitely drawn to that experience. Uh, what is it you think about the military service or maybe military service during wartime that is so popular that uh, those lessons uh, that that the that the other not NGOs but also other government work and also corporate world feel they can bring back, uh, or lessons they can learn from that? So what I would say is, I think there's a rich tradition in this country's history that during times of need, people stand up and serve. And they um, learn invaluable lessons, because it's hard to replicate the environment of warfare and the forcing function that has on, on everything from innovation to leadership and management theory and practice. 
And if you look at this country's history, a lot of a lot of the innovations that have been translated back into society to hopefully make it better came from during these these times of uh, of need and great pressure. Um, war itself is awful. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody uh, would wish it or, or want to go to it. I mean, I think you sort of romanticize it before you do it, but once you're there, it's it's pretty terrifying and and humbling as, as an experience. And so. You know, it, we felt passionately, you know, here at Crossley that there was an opportunity to capture some of these lessons and bring it back to society and help make the country great, um, you know, similar to what our, our forefathers did. So we saw this as a continuation of our legacy and, and really our obligation uh, to continue to serve in some capacity because, uh, you know, the, the country has afforded us some incredible opportunities and we, we think these lessons that we learned were, were relevant um, to, to the environment that our industries are facing, and if America is going to continue to be a strong, relevant force in the world, which I, I personally believe is a good thing, then um, it's important that we learn and we continue to advance and adapt and evolve. And what are, you know, if you could, if you had to pick, or what would you say are maybe three or four of those key lessons that you now practice and preach that are applicable to, you know, government work? I mean, the military is obviously government too, but uh, oftentimes. Uh, it's parsed between that and, you know, like my audience and my profession, obviously, is law enforcement. What are some of the things that you think translate well? Yeah, so I, I would say that, to me, the biggest innovation and in reflection that came out of the last, you know, kind of 15 years has been this acceptance and understanding of how much more complex the environment is today than it used to be. So there, things were always complicated, and there was always different processes and procedures you could use to efficiently and effectively address um, the, those challenges. And what we're seeing today with just the massive advances in technology is that the ability for a, a single individual to have a, a, a disproportionate impact on the environment around them is, is far greater now than ever been. So let me, let me give you an example um, uh, that's probably near and dear to the, the people that are probably close to work. You know where, where, you're, where you're calling from, where I'm calling into from, which is uh, you know th this radicalized couple in San Bernardino that that basically goes on a killing spree, and what they're able to do is 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 put some of that um, information and propaganda through various social media sites that now disproportionately have a massive impact on on the globe, and so in the old days if you did something like that uh, you could pretty much contain it. Now it goes viral and can touch up to 500 million uh, view, uh, viewers and watchers that could then radicalize and inspire somebody else to do something sort of sort of catastrophic. So the ability for the for 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 connection points, the interconnectedness of today's environment, really enabled through technology, necessitates an entirely different mindset and approach to how you how you try to adjust those organizations. And what we found the two main lessons to take away from this are: you have to try to create what we call shared consciousness or centralized communication and understanding so that you can like kind of crowdsource learning and experiences as close to real time as possible. And then you have to empower people. So you have to decentralize decision making. So centralized communication but decentralized decision making so that people can operate the pace and speed necessary to deal with the rapidly changing conditions. Um, and, in, and and so when what you're doing is you're creating a virtuous like feedback loop. So you, you, you centralize your communication to kind of get constant feedback for what's happening in the environment. And then you apply those understandings and learnings to the new decisions you make and the actions that you take. So this is this you know software designers figured this out in, in like design-based practices in the late 90s and early 2000s, and has rapidly accelerated the life cycle of like a consumer product uh, dealing in technology. And you have to do the same thing to how you run or, or organize your 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 agency or your business if you're going to be successful. Oh, yeah, uh, I. I I see that the you know we struggle with in law enforcement in these these silos of of the criminal justice system you know there's the law enforcement and then there's the uh, district attorney's office and then there's probation or there's corrections or there's social services or all the you know uh, alcohol mental health programs all those things don't still don't connect or still don't cooperate like they could and uh, reading his first book but then reading Team of Teams was sort of the to me the blueprint of how we can get better at that and it was exactly those things of that centralized communication but decentralized control uh it seems like there's a lot of opportunity there uh in to to, to directly apply that from a war into law enforcement and how to solve the problems of just keeping people safe fighting crime but also uh, rehabilitating people too as well um, so i thought the book was great for that um 
the I mean the pre- you kind of we kind of just touched on the premise of the book, but can you explain that a little bit? This idea of team of teams. Yeah. So the basic premise there was, you know, a lot of us, and you know, in law enforcement, this is you know, I, I think well demonstrated as well, have been a part of a very high functioning, high performing small team, and you got to have certain capabilities that manifest to be successful there. And the challenge is typically when you start to scale in size, it becomes much harder. And naturally, what happens is those small teams become more tribal or insular because they say, well, this larger enterprise can't possibly operate at the same pace and level of effectiveness as my small team can. So you know, we'll just kind of do our thing. They'll do their thing. And hopefully, it works out. And we found that to, those gaps and seams that existed between those different tribes to be systemic risk really to an, or, to an enemy in our case that was able to exploit those gaps and seams and operate faster and inside a decision making cycle of the larger bureaucracy so it was very disorienting because when if we ever engaged with the enemy uh, we won so every single time we would we would, we would go into like a, a fight I mean almost without exception we'd have success yet collectively as, as a, like as an enterprise or as a, as a war effort it, the situation was getting much much worse and so is that that was disorienting because you're having success and everything you're doing is working, yet uh, the problem's getting worse and worse. It's almost like you can't keep up with this cancer that keeps just metastasizing and spreading. So it, it necessitated us to try to change. And, and, and in the change, what we realized was we had to recreate what it was like to be on a small team on a uh, enterprise level or a team of team level. And so by 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 saying, well, what are the fundamentals that make a small team great? Well, small teams tend to have high degrees of trust. Uh, they tend to be aligned on, on purpose of what they're trying to do. And, uh, and those, those things are the most important things if you're trying to get a small team to be effective. But the other two things it does sort of naturally is it shares information and collaborates learnings. You know, you tend to work in open environments. You, you, know, you know something, your buddy knows it, and you've got a high degree of um, interconnectedness in, uh, going on between team members. And the second thing you do is, is people tend to be empowered. They tend to know their role, responsibility on the team. So like if you look at a fire team in a SEAL platoon, the, 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 the machine gunner knows his job, the, 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 the communicator knows their job, the, the corpsman or medic knows their job, and you've got a, you know, some type of patrol leader who knows their job. And so when something happens, they just sort of naturally do, do what they've got to do. They don't have to talk or see. They just know it. The problem is how do you do that at scale, right? So, and, and that was what really the book was about, was, was replicating that same experience you have in a small team in a team-to-team environment to be able to, to, to dramatically increase you know, that, that shared consciousness or those interconnection points between the different team members that allow you then to get smarter, faster, which then allows you to empower people uh, to make decisions faster at their respective levels. And the transparency that's created by the shared conscious creates uh, you know, a, virtuous, a virtuous accountability mechanism that allows the leaders to then feel more comfortable empowering again. So you know, I, I think General McChrystal's um, philosophy was eyes on, hands off. Like As long as you can see it, you didn't have to touch it. Um, as soon as you couldn't see it and didn't understand it, then he would start rooting around, and that usually became an unpleasant experience for those involved. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, so can these ideas be applied to government work too, not just enterprise companies? But uh, and, and you know, we have a lot of, a lot of listeners of this show are, are first-line supervisors, uh, sergeants and lieutenants. Uh, what are some of the things they can do to help implement this if they're trying to change a, an organization that's maybe a little stale and stalled and uh, stalled yeah no a- absolutely I mean look this was this was started in that environment right so you know back in the day you know seals didn't get along with the Rangers Rangers didn't get along with Delta and seals and Delta hate each other and then all of us don't like the aviators and uh, the Intel people we think like you know sitting around and eat lettuce all day or something so so there was these huge tribal dynamics that didn't allow people to to want to work together, and, and, and ironically, the way it was originally designed is that was okay because the thought was if you had two kind of competing elements, that they would naturally keep each other honest because they would, you know, constantly be competing with each other for like a mission or a task. Well, once once you get overwhelmed with requirements, then all of a sudden that that doesn't really matter anymore. And now you have to figure out how to work together. And so, what I what I would tell you know a, you know a sergeant who's running a, a research department or division is. Go out of your way to, to, to connect and, and, and collaborate with um, your larger network that is going to have some benefit or impact on 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 your um, on your on your on your goal or objective. I mean, it's not natural because most people believe that if you know something before somebody else, you can either take credit for it or it gives you some type of power or control. 
My experience in the new environment is quite the opposite. If you know something before somebody else and you don't um, and you can't share on it and therefore can't act because you need some other authority or capability set to, to, to accomplish your mission, well then everybody loses in that situation. And in fact, the environment is changing so fast that you don't know who needs to know what and when, so it's hard to kind of control or contain it. In fact, if you can create a, a collaboration forum where where you're exchanging information and probably going past the 50-yard line and being transparent and sharing, then you'll force people to, to return back to that meeting or that forum or that venue to get access to that information, which will then by, by, by design give you control, right? So, I mean, think of it from a, a, a technology standpoint. Google puts uh, a search optimization engine online for everybody to use for free. And you can go in there and, and, and ask any question and, and, and you know, get some form of an answer coming out of it. Well, uh, and it's free. And, but the reality is because it's free and everybody gets value out of it, they keep going back to it. And by going back to it, then Google can control the experience by which you're getting their information. Well, the same was true with, with my experience overseas. By creating that medium where you can collaborate, eventually people have to keep coming back. And then you can start to steer and guide the direction of, of what it is you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, you know, more efficiently and effectively. So you, you get some semblance of control back, is my point, by being transparent and sharing. Nah, it's an interesting point. I never thought of uh, of that aspect of it, but it seems that it seems that you're absolutely right. So uh, back to working with these high level people again, and then becoming uh, high level yourself, because we're uh, we have a mutual friend in uh, in Eric Malzone. And so we're, I think, I'm guessing we're about the same age, roughly, um, because Eric and I are the same age. Uh, <laughs> so I say becoming because you went through that process uh, yourself. And working for a general is, uh, I'm imagining, a quite a demanding job, uh, something like uh, what you were doing. And I imagine it still is in the relationship that you have. How did you approach that daily interaction and that daily task of, of working in such a high, high speed environment, for the lack of a better term? And what tools, tips, or tricks did you use or did you find that helped you succeed in those environments and, and that you use today too because now you're, uh, as CEO of Crossley, you're, you're dealing with very high-level people in the corporate world now. Yeah, so what I would say is it's really important to be aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are as an individual and as a leader and, and how you optimally function as a person, right? So for me, it was all about trying to instill a level of consistency and discipline. It, it, this started at a much younger age, obviously, with some of these coaches that I had that I mentioned earlier. But everybody has a, an operating rhythm or cadence. We call it a battle rhythm that you operate with. Uh, and you can basically map it out on a day, week, month, quarter, annual basis. And you say, well, this is the cycle that I go through. People that, that spend time getting understanding and awareness of what they're operating with them will likely be more consistent and disciplined on executing against it which will likely produce better and more consistent results for you as an individual. So, for instance, for me, like, I've got to work out in the mornings. If I don't work out in the mornings, then my day doesn't get off to the right start. Um, I, I don't know that I'm particularly a morning person or not a morning person. I, I tend to do pretty well in the mornings on a personal level. But what I do know is that as a CEO and founder of a company, uh, the day is going to get away from me. Right? Things are going to come at me that I didn't expect or was on the schedule, and the likelihood of me able to make up the time later is because increasingly higher. It's much less likely someone's going to bug you at 4 a.m. to 5.30. It, it, you can more or less control that time frame for the most part. So um, you, can, you can put some controls in place that you know allow you to maintain this, this proper balance that allows you to operate uh, at the optimal level. I think that, gets, that goes into like dietary, it goes into to sleep, um, and it goes into like how you correspond, whether it be through email, phone, chat, face-to-face um, -face or what have you, but figuring out and understanding how you peak perform is, is critically important. And then, and then you have to extend that one step further to the team around you, right? So because how you show up consistently then allows other people to cue off of you. And that predictability lowers the, the, the cognitive load on and uncertainty on other people in the environment, which allows everybody to perform at a higher level. So, I mean, the whole idea that makes a, an individual, I think, elite or a small team elite is they're really, 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 really good at the fundamentals. And by being very good at the fundamentals, uh, it allows them to have excess capacity to deal with rapidly changing environments. So for us in the, in the, in the, SEAL, in the SEAL platoon, you, you never know what the target's going to give you when you go on it. Right, uh, Murphy's law is, is, is sort of rules. Or if you're if you're a law enforcement going into a into a house, you 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 you're sort of trained to expect the unexpected, 
And and what's gonna what's gonna make the difference in that decisive moment of ingot these for these mission critical teams is is your ability to rapidly assess a situation and make quick decisions and react faster inside of the decision space of that of your adversary or enemy. And the way you do that is by having incredible fundamentals. So you don't have to think about the basics. They just happen naturally because you drill at ten thousand hours. And so then you can react faster, more effectively in that space, and you have a competitive advantage. And that's that is true in all things. So if you've gotten your workout in the morning, and all of a sudden someone blows it up, you know that you, you, you've at least got it done enough for you physically. It's going to set your mental condition, the right mindset, to be successful later. If you're inconsistent and undisciplined, that just starts to fall apart pretty quickly. Yeah, we talk. Uh, we've talked a lot about it on the show about we call it, or I call it, like cognitive fatigue. But eliminating those things that exhaust your mind that you have to make decision the same decision over and over and over again uh, uh, leaves you with less uh, brain power or energy or enthusiasm to make the decisions that you're saying like you're saying have to be made in the in a split second. Uh, and I found that to be absolutely true for me that if I can eliminate uh, or make consistent as many decisions throughout the day as possible that I'm that I'm set up well to lead a squad at, during night shift and make decisions at 3 a.m. that I wouldn't necessarily maybe be very sharp on making if I if I didn't have that so that's been a huge thing for me to 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 learn too uh what are um you know you when you when you left uh, when you graduated from the naval academy and you went to the teams and you started in this I guess middle is middle management an okay term to to use for for an ensign and, and first lieutenant there I mean you're an officer so you're so I guess you're in leadership position but you're pretty junior I mean you're you, you know, you're really heavily relying upon your senior enlisted that that know everything, have the experience. You're basically just there to be a, to be a sponge so, in the first couple of years. Yeah, and so I'm I'm guessing I know the answer to this question, but starting in that position and then le- going through the ranks like you did, and then working uh, at such a high level like that, do you find that sometimes followership that sometimes being a good leader requires good followership uh, and uh, how do you uh, how do you sometimes maybe be a good follower when or what are the tips for being a good follower when maybe you don't necessarily understand or, or agree with the decision above you? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. So I, I would say as a as a junior officer in a platoon, the first couple of years out, like I said, you're you're really just on receive mode um, if you if you're smart, and if not, your 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 platoon typically helps you get there. Uh, <laughs> there's a self correcting mechanism for. Um, uh, cocky uh, young ensigns, as I probably learned firsthand. Um, uh, as you gain a little more experience and credibility, it's, I liken it to being on a sports team where you become sort of the captain by the time you're like the senior as being a platoon commander, meaning um, you command the respect of your men primarily based on the quality of your ability to perform um, based on, 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 on pre-existing standards. And if you can't do that, then you're not going to be the captain for very long uh, and, and, and earn their respect. Um, it, it, it is a, it, it is a, well, there is a chain of command, uh, certainly in the military. I would say in the special operations community, specifically in the SEALs, it's, it, it is earned, not given. Um, and, it, and if you can't earn it from the, from the men, you, 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 you won't be effective as a leader. So you work hard at being uh, or trying to be competent at the fundamentals and earn the respect of your people, and you do that by being a good listener. Uh, primarily, because your platoon chief and LPO, they're gonna, they're they're going to forgotten more than you possibly learn in their experience, and and you're heavily relying upon them and their expertise and descending in the right direction. When you come out of that as a platoon commander, though, you have to make this transition in, into what I would call mid-level management. Where now you're at this this O4 level in the military. There's ten levels of rank. O4 is really the first time you start to take on, you know, the more experience. Well, now potentially you're actually a peer as far as life experience of some of those more senior enlisted. Um, uh, individuals in the community, and you're expected to to assume more more decision making and responsibility. And more importantly, you have to get some separation from from you know what it was like to be like you know one of the guys on a daily basis. And so you walk slightly different line. And I think that's the adjustment period for most officers that becomes probably the most difficult in their maturation process um, because they have to, they're expected now to kind of think on their own and and make decisions that. You know, sometimes won't be as popular, but likely or hopefully, or, or for the best of the the community, the organization, and you tend to get the more of the administrative stuff, which is obviously a hell of a lot less interesting than than than, than running things, right? So you tend to see two things happen. You see a lot of people get out because uh, that's not really what they signed up for. They signed up for to kind of run and gun and be one of the guys, and, and you know, or you see people 
um, you, you naturally get you get detailed away from the community. So for me, going to DC, I was outside of a platoon, outside of the SEALs. I mean, I was representing the SEALs. I still work for the SEALs, but you know, I wasn't with the guys every day, and so that was a very different feeling um, than than being you know with the boys. It was a staff job, right? And staff jobs, uh, you learn a lot, but they're not nearly as it's not it's not it was never in the brochure. You didn't sign up for that. I want to go back a little bit to to kind of the day to day, but uh, I, I guess I have two questions. One is what what was your day to day like? When you were there in Afghanistan, or sorry, in Iraq, right, with a with General McChrystal working in that top team, uh, when you were there for those thirteen months, and um, what does your uh, what's your typical day consist of now as the CEO of a private organization? Yeah, so I, I would say they're pretty similar uh, to, from a, from an individual operating rhythm. You know, so first of all, when you're working for for the for the four star. Um, his bad rhythm is your bad rhythm, right? So what makes him optimally perform, your job is, is, is primarily first and foremost to, 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 to set him up for success to, to perform at the highest level possible. So I was one of a much larger staff. I think there's probably 90 of us in total that was sole responsibility was trying to optimize the general's um, time and activities to be as effective as possible. And so um, I ran future ops and plans, so I had a little more daylight from, from like his aides or, or his executive officer, who was really my boss, who were just trying to keep up with him on a minute-by-minute on a minute basis. I, I, had the for, I had the ability to go a little bit farther, saying, hey, well, this is what we're going to do next, and then, and then, and then, and then reverse out. So I, I tend to get up. Uh, we, we did a stand-up every morning uh, at 7.30 in Afghanistan where it was a quick sync on, on the intelligence from last night and activities for the day going forward. And so I would be up probably within 30 minutes of that meeting, check email downstairs for the meeting, and then I would, I would go hard really until about 1 in the morning, and I'd probably get a workout in around uh, midday and, and then repeat. Now, the general was up much earlier than that. He would get up around, uh, you know, I think 3.30 or 4, but then he would also try to, we'd try to have him down by... 9, 30, 10 every day. So um, his aides were kind of up with him at sunrise or close to it, and or before sunrise really. And then I would be up past that to make sure like a lot of the admin logistics got taken in place and ready. So it, it was a good 18-hour day. I, I would say the stress level on being on a staff job is different than commanding men in combat, which was the, the previous deployment I'd had. Um, I don't think it's as intense. Um, obviously, it was when you're going out on a nightly basis and putting various lives in risk. But I would say the gravity of what we were doing was, was and obviously the impact it was having was, was much, much, much greater. So uh, it was an incredible learning experience. Um, how I would compare that to now is I think it's similar stress, right? I, being an entrepreneur starting a business is, 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 is hard. It's really hard. Uh, I mean, I was good at what I did when I went to be on General McChrystal's staff, so I knew how to, like, plan a trip and, you know, align a plan with activities. Uh, starting a business, I didn't know anything. So I mean, I had to learn everything, you know, kind of trial by fire, and so that cognitive load is, you know, pretty weighted pretty heavily. So trying to get into a consistent rhythm um, was was I, I to me much much harder, and I, I made a ton of mistakes. In fact, I, I you know I still make a ton of mistakes every day. But but you know, my sort of my motto in life is get right quick. You know, like because yeah. <laughs> uh, if you don't, the alternative isn't very good typically. So. Uh, you know, you just keep your, your your nose to the grind. You just grind through it. But it feels a little bit like uh, the chaos and the complexity of being in in, in in combat with the uncertainty of knowing that you're not very good at what you, your fundamentals aren't there. And that that to me is obviously a lot harder because whether I was in Baghdad commanding SEALs or being on a staff, I I, I, I had a lot of confidence in my team and my team's fundamentals and in, in my ability to kind of keep up and in I would say in the private sector, I had none of that, right? So you're learning all that as you're you're building it. Now at the same time, bullets aren't flying, so it, you know it's not the same. People talk about the risk; it's not it's not it's not the same, obviously, right? So I'm not trying to compare it, but um, the, the stress is comparable, though. Yeah. Well, okay. So you talked about working out. The general's famous for eating one meal a day. Um, so how did you? How did? What are the other things you use to to maintain at that high level? Whether it was the nutrition you you used or supplements or uh, uh, off-duty activities. What was it that you used to stay at a peak performance? Yeah. So, so, so for me, I'm not sure I'm in peak physical performance like I, like I, like I like to be anymore. But um, uh, I would say at the high, you're, what you're doing is is you're making sure you're getting at least an hour of physical activity that involves sweating, 
uh, in a day, and you try to do that on a regular cadence. You're, ideally, you're getting um, a quality amount of sleep. You know, I, you know, I think in combat, realistically, like if you got four or five hours, you're doing pretty good. Um, but I, I, optimally, I, I know the science would support something greater than that. You know, six to eight, unless you're unless you got unique, uh, uh, unless you're like Bill Clinton or something, you got some unique uh, sleep habit, or John Kennedy or something. Um, and, and and then the rest of it, I think it's about doing sprints and breaks. So for me, if I have to intently focus on something, uh, ideally I try to keep those at 20 or 30 minute intervals, and then I try to take a 10 minutes where I can, you know, kind of let my mind expand and loose and get up, walk around, get some blood flowing, and then I can go back and focus again. That that to me helps me keep, you know, kind of my frontal lobe stimulated and, and, and active, vice getting too methodical. Once I start obsessing on a thing, and then obviously you know you get into it. Um, but I think if you're trying to, that's not that's not sustainable typically, at least not for myself. So I try to do these sprints and then breaks of intense focus and then activity to kind of keep it going for a longer period of time. And if I can get a nap, uh, which is rare, but if I could get a nap, I, I, you take it. You take a 15 or 20 minute, um, um, you know, power nap, especially if you're if you're if you're getting sub sub, sub six hours of sleep at night. I, I find that helps you sustain. Yeah, I would think so. So. Uh, just a couple questions left, if you don't mind. Um, you know, one of the reasons I was really uh, interested in talking with you is uh, that career development, that career path that you took. And uh, we talk uh, on this show quite a bit about, like, lack of a better term, but leveling up, which I'm sure you're, you're aware of, or you know, and or the idea that you are the the average of the five people you hang out with or that are closest to you, that kind of idea, right? And how to increase that average of five. Um, what are some of your do you, do you have any strategies or, or, or tips or lessons for people who are looking to get out of just kind of their rut maybe or uh, you know the position they're in and they want to work with people like yourself and, and people like a, like a general like Stanley McChrystal in, that are comparable in their agency you know so this could be some really mentor, mentorship roles with command staff uh, that sort of stuff yeah. So what I would say, at least what served me well, is always, always look for the diversity opportunity. Um, I find complacency to be the biggest risk for not being able to sustain or, or, or perform at a high level. And it's really easy if you get good at something, they got to do more of it. So if you get promoted in a job to kind of do the job you just had instead of the job that you're in now. Uh, there's, there's a great saying that, that, that a, a mentor of mine said once, a guy named General John Vines is really a legend and a god uh, of a guy. He commanded the 18th Airborne Corps was Stan McChrystal's mentor. Just a remarkable man. And and he said, you know, focus on the, the things that only you can affect. And if you step back and you look at your job or what role you're in and you say, am I the only person that can do this, 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 this task or function? Well, then you're probably doing the right thing. Oftentimes, the answer to that question is it's not. You're doing something that somebody else can be doing. So you could be empowering somebody else to do that job, which is going to give you scale. You're just not comfortable because you think you can do you know, 10, 15% better. But the reality is you're doing something that's more comfortable for you, and you've got to get out of that comfort zone and focus on those things that, that you need to get better at. And, and the way you do that for me is, is constantly looking for those opportunities outside of your um, existing job or the next job that's going to put you in a position to really stretch and, and, and focus yourself. Uh, so I think that's that 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 mindset and that relentless commitment to constant, never-ending improvement has to be really a mindset you got to take as an individual. And the other way to kind of summarize it is 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 winning winning mindset, which you know, a warrior mindset. And 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 in, and in that situation, what it means is that um, uh, winning is not it's not an outcome. It's not it's not it's not like a mountaintop you you get to and you go, okay, I'm there. It really is a, a journey and a constant commitment to trying to be better on a daily basis, and um, you know you, you have to you have to keep focusing on that. What you think you get to where you're trying to go, then you got to keep moving that bar uh, constantly if you're going to be successful. And surrounding yourself with people that are better than you and challenging you is the fastest, best way to do that because they're going to be the constant reminder and feedback that you're not where, you're not there yet. Uh, and, and, you're, and quite frankly, and if you find yourself becoming complacent because you think you are there, well, then you're probably hanging out with the wrong crowd. You've got to go find the next crowd. It doesn't mean you can't be great friends and keep those relationships, but you've got to continually be pushing yourself to, to go into harder things. I mean, when I first started playing water polo, the way I got good was I had virtually no talent. But, but what I did was fortunate enough that I played with people a lot older than me. Uh, that had a lot more skill, and the coaches threw me in there, and you know, I just had a tenacity to want to try to keep up. 
And as long as you kept doing that, then it, it naturally pulls you, you know, in, in, in up to a higher level of standard constantly. So I would say you got to do the same thing in work. You got to look for that job that's not standard that you're not comfortable with and go do it. Do something outside of your expertise that's going to broaden your perspective and mind. You're going to learn things that can come back in. You can apply to your role and position. Uh, in, the, in the agency environment, law enforcement, there's hundreds of different roles and responsibilities that will make you a more effective at your job, and I would try to go find those. Some of those things, the problem, the problem with people don't is because they're not rewarded in a career progression, and I would challenge some of those assumptions and be active with whoever the career manager is and, your, and or your mentor uh, you know, to help create awareness around it so it can allow you to, to, to continue to grow. That's a great spot to end on. <laughs> Thank you very much, David Silverman, off the co-author of Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, CEO of Crosslead. Where can people find you? Uh, are you on Twitter, Instagram, or the, I know the, the, the company? Yeah, yeah. The, the, I just go find Crosslead.com, and you can easily get a hold of me. I am on Twitter, and DK Silverman is my handle. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not as active as I should be, but uh, I am there. David, thanks for your time, and uh, uh, really appreciate all these uh these tips and, and, and your insight it's pretty uh it's pretty neat to see uh someone in, in who's uh really done so much <laughs> so much at, at at the same age so uh, appreciate you taking the time we know you're a busy guy so uh a lot of great tips for uh for being a leader and and also just kind of that leveling up so thank you thank you Gary. appreciate you having me All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. To follow him on Twitter, it's at dksilverman dot dot com. That'd be stupid. At dksilverman, uh, give him a follow, and you can uh, see inside his mind a bit. Uh, pretty cool and uh, fascinating guy who has experienced a lot, a lot, a lot. As always, uh, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Squad Room. If you have a moment, please consider leaving a review of the show. It's very helpful in getting the word out. And the one thing I really want you to do is share this information or share this episode or share one of the other episodes that's a favorite of yours. Share it with someone else who needs to hear the content of the show. Uh, Get the word out and help us help other officers achieve their absolute best. That's what we're working for. Uh, I'm working on it myself. This is a I am a work in progress and I'm documenting that and I want to find uh, other officers that want the same. And the more of us, the more power we have as a collective unit, the more of change we can bring to the, our agencies, to the profession, and to, of course, the public's perception of us as well. Also want to thank SB Tactical at sbtactical.com for their support of their show. They're a veteran-owned and American-made company. You can check out their active shooter training system, iCombat, at sbtactical.com or their in-home iCombat Pro for the individual officer. So until next time, stay safe and take care of each other.